0: This is summer at First Baptist. Praise him. A Sudanese woman is currently awaiting her execution in Sudan. Her crime? Refusing to recant her Christian faith. It's a little confusing, uh, but because she has a Muslim father... She is technically considered a Muslim, even though her mother raised her in the Christian church and she says that she's a Christian and she married a Christian man. But the laws in Sudan are against her since interfaith marriages are illegal. She's on death row. With her two children, actually, with her behind bars. She just gave birth to her second child. And they're like... You know, so, you know, she has young ones with her behind bars. And yet she refuses to recant her faith. If you were in her position, what would you do? Recant your Christian faith, get out of jail, be reunited with your husband, perhaps seek asylum in a different country, or keep the faith for the sake of Christ and remain in jail. So do you walk out of fear and not by faith, or do you continue to keep the faith no matter what might come? Our passage this morning helps us look at what it looks like to walk by faith and not by sight or by fear. Last week, we began to look at Abraham, the father of faith, and in scripture, Abraham is he's held out. For us, as a positive example of what it looks like to seek after and also to follow God, and He is a really important character in the Bible, as all of you guys know already, and a really important character in history, just in general. Um, and so, it's great that we can look at at least a little, por- little portions of His life here. Uh, but so much more important than studying Abraham. It's to study Abraham's God because it's in studying Abraham that we get to see how his God works, who his God is, why he does what he does. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12. Um, As you guys know, as we've been traveling through Genesis, you know that Genesis is broken up into two sections. That's Genesis 1 to 11, basically the history from the creation of the world, at least the portions that God wants us to know about. Uh, The history of the world leading up to the patriarchs, that is the the fathers of the faith. And then from 12 to the end of the book, you see the history of the patriarchs. So you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then it finishes off with Joseph. And uh, it's important to read again the promise that God gives Abram, as he's known there. Eventually, God changes his name to Abraham. Uh, But it's important to read the promises that God gave to Abram because they undergird scripture and they undergird all of God's salvation plan, his redemptive history plan to save sinners. So these things, these promises are also what are known as covenants. uh, They they are like the pillars that uphold God's salvation plan. And so we got to know, we got to see how important these covenants, at least this one covenant is. So go ahead and look there, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Basically, he says, leave your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So through this man who comes from pagan background, through this couple who are barren, they can't have children, God promises to rebuild and recreate his people. And he does so, interestingly, with his word. He comes to Abram and Sarai with a promise. He's going to reconstitute his people who will then walk after him. So today as we continue the story of Abraham, or Abram as he's called here in our chapters, We see that though he is a model of the faith, his faith is just like ours, exactly like ours. It falters because we falter and both of the characters we see today. So first we look at Abram and then we look at his nephew, Lot. They teach us a similar lesson. They teach us what it looks like for man's faith to be tested, what faith looks like when it falters. But yet in it all, God remains faithful. So we see God, uh, we see man's faith tested. We see Abraham and Lot's faith falters. But then in it all, we see God's great faithfulness. So let's look at at Abram's choice here. Abram's choice. Is he going to walk by fear or walk by faith? And here we look at verses 10 to 20. Now, there was a famine in the land. That's bad. So, so with the word now, it hinges and moves us forward in terms of the story, in terms of the narrative. Now there was a famine in the land, and it was severe, Scripture says. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So already you should be thinking, as people who, come, who have the word after uh, the exodus, out, as they came out of Egypt, we should very much be thinking like, oh no, what is he doing? He's going to Egypt? And we see Abraham's challenge here is he's faced with a famine. I mean, what do you do when God promises to give you the land? But then all of a sudden it's not very attractive anymore. It's not so desirable where apparently you go down to Egypt. So those should have ominous undertones as he goes down to Egypt. Uh, So if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that going down to Egypt signifies some very difficult things. And keep in mind, it was Moses who is recounting this history here. And Moses had a very bad experience, along with the people of Israel, with Egypt. Egypt kept them under their thumb, made them slaves. That's where they were captives for 400 years. But you don't need to know what happens to Israel under Egypt to know that leaving God's promised land cannot be good. Because God had promised to give it to him. And then he reiterates the promise there in uh, Genesis chapter 12, what we saw last week. So we don't know exactly how long Abram was in the promised land uh, before the famine hit. But the way in which the narrative is put together, it's like he enters into the land. He sojourns into the land. He builds an altar. He calls upon the name of the Lord and almost as quickly as he enters into it, so he exits it and he's in search of survival here we all would be in search of survival he doesn't only have himself to feed but he has his wife sarai to feed he has all of his animals to feed he has his adopted nephew lot to feed and we saw that last week his father died so abram adopted this man named lot so he has all of these people to feed and he is responsible for their survival and in some ways if you're thinking on a human level the choice to leave God's promised land and to go down to sojourn in Egypt is a really natural decision to make. I mean, you can't inherit a land if you're dead. You can't have a great number of people coming from you if you are dead. But in going down to Egypt, it seems that Abram is taking everything into his own hands. And at this point of the story, there is no mention um of abram doing what he did in the beginning right so far now there was a famine in the land so abram went down to egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land right there's there's no mention of him building altars to god and calling upon the name of the lord like he did earlier it seems to be that he's just letting fear drive his decision making process fear drives his living situations and i think this is very clear from the rest of the story So let's look now at Abraham's plan as he comes up with it in the midst of fear, right? He's aiming for survival. So he travels south through the Negev desert to Egypt. And as he's about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister that I may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. So here, Abram's not only afraid of physical danger in terms of running out of food, he's also afraid of physical danger because the Egyptians are going to kill him. Imagine sojourning, walking and stressing out about what might happen in the future. As you're walking the trek down, all the way down to Egypt. I mean, how are we going to stay alive? And he supposes their sure death if they go into the land of Egypt as husband and wife. And so he says, he comes up with this magnificent plan. Let's say you are my sister. Now, technically, Sarai is his sister. They have the same father, but they have different mothers. And they decided to get married. Uh, Now, in that culture that he came from, it was a common practice to do so. Uh, God hadn't given his law yet that said that would eventually outlaw this. But in that culture, and even in some biblical culture, that's a legitimate thing to do. Um, Back then, before God's law said no. So, for example, if I took a wife, I would legally adopt her into my family. And for some reason, that culture, they would look more positively on those types of things. And then even in God's law... He provided this this uh, way to help out the helpless where, let's say, if my brother dies and leaves his wife alone, his children alone, there is a provision for me to take them under my wing to support them. Uh, And then I could marry her. That's what God's law has allowed in that portion of time there. Um, So technically they are sister or at least half sister, half brother. But by, by, but by saying she is my sister, you know, he's not telling an outright lie. He's more just shading the truth a little bit in order to save his own skin. And that's really what he's concerned with. So I had a chat this morning with a brother. We were talking about fear. This here is fear. He's driven by fear. He leaves the promised land out of fear. He tells a lie. He comes up with this plan because his life is at stake. This is what he's concerned with, right? His life this is what it says when they see you they will kill me say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that i may be spared because of you so there's all this like you and me and you and me and there's nothing about god in this picture right so again we're left thinking dude is this guy even consulting god at all with this plan that he's come up with he's all you do this and i'll do that and you do this and they're going to kill me because of you contrast that with deuteronomy four forty. go ahead and flip there deuteronomy 4 verse 40 genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy now keep in mind here this years hundreds of years later this is moses with all of his people standing on the cusp of the promised land So they have left and now they have, they're about to enter into it. And look what he says there. What is it that's going to make it go well for him? Verse 40, therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments. That's God's. Which I command you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you. And that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So Moses says, you look at his commands and his statutes that he is giving you today, and that will make you go well in the land. But here, man, Abram is doing something vastly different. He's, he's coming up with this concocted plan. They are going to kill me, so you go ahead and lie so that I might live well. And there's nothing about the Lord's command here. The Lord, God's not even in the picture. I mean, who would have thought that the very fulfillment of god's plan to abram and all of his seed after him land people blessing would hinge on the external beauty of his wife sarah that's really what's going on here the promise ends because sarah is so stinking beautiful and so he has to come up with this, he has to come up with this plan because he's totally living in fear His very plans reveal an insecure heart that's threatened by the world, right? He's thinking on a world program. And ultimately, he is insecure in the arms of God because as God, he's the one who's promised him everything. So Abram is not off to a good start. The people of God are not off to a good start. Unfortunately, fear would continue to weigh down God's people as you just move along the Bible. So just think of Exodus and Moses's heart. Right, God calls Moses, but Moses fears. He says, I can't speak, and you want me to speak? And then you think about the people as they sojourn through the desert, as they were grumbling there. They were fearing. So much so that they say, wouldn't it be better if we were back under Pharaoh's thumb? Underneath his rule? And then right when they're about to get into the promised land, right, they send out the spies to go into the land, and fear captures 10 out of the 12 spies' hearts. And they say, we can't do it because there are big people in the land god obviously must be very small fast forward to the new testament fear is what paralyzed peter in the garden and in fact even though many pharisees they knew who jesus was it kept them fear kept them from proclaiming and professing jesus as lord and savior even though they knew who he was and then of course fear most certainly threatens the foundation of the church So given how fear seems to threaten all of God's people, it stifles God's people from living a life of faith, it would be ridiculous of us to not find a kindred spirit here in Abram. Where does fear have you by the throat this morning? How is it hindering the way that you follow after Jesus doing what he has commanded? Now, I recognize that that's sometimes a really hard question to answer because fear often doesn't pre, uh, you know, say, here I am. It doesn't present itself outright, but it, uh, it's found in the heart, right? So just as one example where I see a lot of fear going on that hinders our walk after Christ, I see it come out in evangelism. And I, I've struggled with the same. And we know, So we know that God, is call, God calls us to share the good news, his good news about Jesus with other people. We know that it is that that saves people. Good news goes to people's ears and the spirit gives them life. Yet we don't share it. And we don't even realize that at times what's stopping us and keeping us back is fear. And we give into it. So those of you guys who are not sharing the gospel with someone you know God wants you to share it with. Why don't you share it with them? Oftentimes the natural answer is, well, I don't really know why I don't share it to them. Uh, But, you know, I think is a great question to ask in the midst of the, I'm not really sure. It's, well, what is at stake if you did? And those of you guys who have hung around me long enough, you know, if I'm, you know, you guys have probably heard me ask you that very question. What is at stake if you did? So let's say this afternoon you went home to share the gospel with your family or whoever it is that you want to share the gospel with. What is at stake if you shared the gospel with them this afternoon? And it is freeing for people to give answers because finally, you know, it's like we're laying our heart on the table. We can actually deal with what's really going on. And it's refreshing actually to hear it because then we can insert the gospel in God's commands and his counsel and how he lifts up the, the, the fearful and go to Jesus in the midst of our fear. Well, I'm afraid that people are going to think I'm weird. Right? That's probably one response that we give. I'm afraid that people are going to reject me. And in fact I'm afraid that uh, if they reject me then no one else is going to share the gospel with them ever. And how are they going to be born again? I'm afraid I'm going to ruin our relationship. I mean, we're family after all. Or they say something like I'm afraid I'm going to ruin our relationship because we're coworkers after all. Or they say I'm afraid that I'm going to ruin a relationship because these guys are my drinking buddies. So I really can't share the gospel with anybody. Can't share it with my family, can't share it with my coworkers, can't share it with my drinking buddies because I'm going to ruin all my relationships. what is at stake in the midst of your fear? And we can apply it to all sorts of things here. What is at stake in the midst of fear? Abraham fears his, his life most immediately, right? And so he sins. He lives out from underneath God's rule. And he says, well, I'm just going to go ahead and make stuff up, even though this doesn't please God. So we fear loss of relationship. We fear Losing our status at our workplace, so we remain silent about Jesus. Applying it to other things, let's think about confession of sin. Uh, so, you know, in my own life, I know that I've been fearful to confess my sins to other people because I'm afraid of what they're going to think. And so we fear, and we end up saying, "I'm sure you guys know this." We say we fear other people. We fear that they're going to reject us. So we don't confess our sins because then they're going to know the real us and the gospel doesn't cover over those things. We fear losing our security, even though we know that God gives us to God calls us to give sacrificially. So let's say you're, you're fearful in giving in, in tithing and offering. We fear losing our security. So even though we know that God calls us to give sacrificially, we need to hoard our money. Let's talk about forgiveness. Maybe we're fearful of forgiving that one person. That we absolutely just do not want to forgive. We fear God won't hold people accountable. So we ourselves take it upon ourselves to make sure they get what they deserve as if we even could do that. So when you identify what you fear, you're then able to confess your fears, right? You're able to bring these doubts to God and confess them before them. See where you aren't living according to God's word. And then you're able to act in faith, knowing, just as Oscar mentioned earlier... That we have full and free forgiveness in Jesus Christ, even in the midst of a faltering faith. Abram says, I fear my life. He ought to have said, I confess, I value my life more than God's promises, more than God himself, more than than the promised land. I believe in my own schemes and in the will of God. I believe that lying is a better thing. And he should have said, forgive me. You say, you God say I am to trust and boast in your faithfulness. Then that is what I'm going to do you're able to look fear into the face and know that god is with me even in the midst of death unfortunately that's not what abram did comes up with this plot brings his wife into it even so how's that for leadership uh let's see what happens verse 14 look there when abram entered egypt the egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. (laughs) Whoops. Big mistake. She becomes Pharaoh's wife, right? How's that for leadership, leadership of this great father of the faith. Now it's not clear that Abram knew what Pharaoh was going to do. He thought Pharaoh was going to kill him, but instead Pharaoh just sort of kidnaps her and says, now that now you're underneath my family. Um, so that's just what happens it's the plan he hatched the plan for him and his wife to stay alive and unfortunately he gains riches all at the expense of his wife so there are mounting problems here with god's promise if we think back to god's promise he's going to promise to give abram a long line of family he's going to promise he promises him to give him a, a a land a kingdom he also promises Abram will be a blessing to the world or his offspring will be a blessing to the world. But how exactly do you build a kingdom, have a family, be a blessing to the world through your offspring? When number one, you're barren. And number two, you're coming up with a plan to give your wife to this pagan man, Pharaoh. So there's a lot of things going on here. Promises that is at stake. What's going to happen? Look at verse 17. <laughs> Look at what God does in his faithfulness. But... The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her from my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. We really see the faithfulness of God here in these verses, right? You have Abraham's faith being tested, his faith faltering, but yet you see the faithfulness of God. Even though Abram got Sarai and himself into this mess of a situation, who is there to protect Sarai? It's God. He's the one bringing the plagues upon Pharaoh and his whole household and protects her from Abram's mistake as well as Pharaoh's mistake. This is the Lord here working out his very promise as we read last week. Those who bless you will be blessed. And those who curse you will be cursed. That's in the earlier part of chapter 12. We also see God's kindness to Abraham in many other ways. So you have a rebuke from a pagan that seems to slap him around and remind him of the truth. This is a a rebuke spoken by the mouth of a pagan. I mean, how clear is this? Remember, Moses is writing this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing down the words of God. How clear is it that Sarai, no matter how determined Abram is to say he is his sister, God is clear that she is his wife. I mean, you you read those verses again. Um, In verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. He could have just stopped there, but he says, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and, and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. It's, with, it's like with every single reference to the fact that Sarai is Abram's wife, God is pounding Abram's very lie back into his face. Fear here is driving Abram's situation. But yet in the midst of it, God is faithful. Look at verse 20. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning Abram, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. How would you like to be in Abram's position right there? Right? You're the one who says there's a famine up here. We got to go down to Egypt. You're the one who say they're going to kill me. So why don't you lie? And after you get there, You have the very country that you wanted to sojourn in saying you are not welcome here. Rebuked by a pagan. Why have you sinned against me? He says, get out of this land. (laughs) And Abram is supposed to be in that land. How would you like to be in Abraham's position there? His plan was a serious fail. It's a lesson for us. In all the worry and anxiety of fear which we know all too well, and all the planning and all the plotting to get yourself out of whatever bad situation you may think you're in, our hope is not ultimately in our plans, but in God, it's in God's faithfulness in His loving kindness to deliver. So for us, we got to ask the question, are you living in a failed plan? Have you not considered, even for a moment, that in that failed plan, God may be teaching you that your hope shouldn't rest ultimately in you or your plans, but ultimately in a faithful God who always delivers. Fear drove Abram to lie, to get out of the promised land, to doubt God. But yet, even though his faith faltered, God was faithful. Abram was driven by fear, but God is always faithful to protect his people. To guide them back to land, and then to bring him, bring them back to him. Look at verse thirteen. You see that this is the emphasis of the passage. Um, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Sorry, this is chapter thirteen, verse one now abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold so he got all this stuff from pharaoh himself and now he just he's gone back see how faithful god is and he journeyed on from the negev as far as bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning that's important to note there between bethel and i to the place where he had made an altar at first and there abram called upon the name of the lord you know, from all of Abram's time in Egypt, the passage is scoldingly silent about him calling on the name of the Lord, building altars. And he sets out, he leaves the promised land after having done so, after having called upon God's name. He leaves going, he goes to Egypt, falls flat on his face. His plan does not work. God uses Pharaoh, uh, rebuke of a pagan, deportation to get him back out, to kick him into the promised land. And it's there that he returns back to doing what he did at first. He calls upon the name of the lord his faith is tested his faith falters but god is faithful that's the lesson that we learn we see it in abram now we see it in lot lots this is abram's nephew same lesson verses five to seven and lot who went with abram also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites uh, were dwelling in the land. So you see Abram's problem. There was a famine. You got Pharaoh over here. Now they're back into the promised land, but yet they, they face their own problem. The land can't sustain them both. They got, both got a lot of possessions and there's tension developing between them. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 13. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. If you take the right, then I will go to the left. So he recognizes here that Lot is his kinsman. He wants to preserve the family relationship. And so he says, look, you choose first and then I will, I will go accordingly. So Lot has a significant choice before him, just like Abram did. Abram decided out of survival, I go down here to Egypt. Lot says out of survival, yes, I will go there. He's just like his uncle in the chapter before, who is concerned very much about survival. So he too needs to provide not only for his family, but for everything else, his shepherds, his animals, his livestock. Look there in verse 10, you see what he does. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. This choice, I think, was really natural to Lot, just like Abram's was to go down to Egypt. In the moment, he was probably on some sort of lookout point. He looks up, he lifts his eyes, the scripture says, and he sees all of the Jordan Valley. It's green because, you know, like naturally like a river, the river overflows, the river floods, and then waters everything around it, just like the Nile did in Egypt. So, so that's why Abram says, hey, look, you know, let's, let's go down there. So Lot sees the Jordan River watering everything around it. He can imagine, you guys can imagine if you were in his position, what it would be like for your people your descendants to be well fed for all of your cattle all of your livestock to survive and i bet thinking about shaping influences i bet how he envisioned the future you know how he imagined what his future would be like was affected by his past there stands lot looking at that lookout point stood there a man familiar with loss lost his father he's a man familiar with transition he gains new parents abram and sarah not only that, but he transitions to a new country, goes to Egypt, and then he gets kicked out and he's tagging along with Abram, it seems. And so the scripture makes it seem that way. Famine had driven him down to Egypt. Pharaoh had driven him back into the promised land. So what he sees and what he surveys as he stands and looks out over the Jordan, not only is an answer to his future, but it's an answer to his past. Regardless of past or future, it is deliverance. The problem is, just like with Abram, Lot here lives by sight and not by faith. He's not learning from his uncle Abram. Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw. He's living by sight there. I mean, you you can think of scripture. The last time that we were told someone made a decision based on their eyes is Genesis chapter 3. It's with Eve. And what did that do? The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. And she ate, sinning against God, not listening to the commands of God, the promises of God. The Jordan Valley delighted Lot's eyes, and it meant deliverance. It was like the Garden of Eden. It was like Egypt. But there his considerations are flawed, right? I mean, in both places, those who rejected God's ways were kicked out of those very places. So they didn't do do so good right there. So in many ways, Lot makes the same mistake as Abram, living by sight and not by faith, not being driven by the promises of God, not holding on to them. And Lot's decisions reveal what he thought would ultimately bring comfort and security, right? It's not the promises of God, it's what he sees with his eyes. We do the same thing. Comfort and security in what our eyes tell us is good and not in God and his promises. Let's be clear. The issue is not that the things themselves bring some degree of security, some degree of comfort. So let's say money, for example, some degree of money brings some degree of comfort. That's not in and of itself the bad thing. The problem is, is when our hearts find comfort in those things, ultimate comfort in those things, that's when you know something's wrong. So in other words, if the Lord has blessed you with a lot of money, you are responsible for that. You have some degree of security, and part of that responsibility is to let other people be secure too. That they can come and draw from you, that you can share it with your friends. That, that's, that's not a bad thing. But when your heart finds ultimate security in those things, that's when you know it's bad. You're living by sight and not by faith. I was doing a, a story, I think, that illustrates this well. Is I was doing premarital counseling of a couple that does not attend this church. And in the process of counseling, it had become clear that the, you know, every couple kind of has like a major issue. Um, And those issues arise to the surface really quickly. And in the course of counseling, it had become clear that the one major issue that they were going to have in their marriage and the one issue that they had had in their relationship that caused the greatest degree of tension had to do with financial security. The gal had seen her family lose their house. And it wasn't even that the father was living out of their means. It was just that, you know, the real estate market went bad. And we all know that it went really bad a while ago. And eventually the the family loses their house and they decide to move to a different house, smaller house. And it was a really difficult time, a very difficult time. And she never wanted to go through that again. So here she comes with these shaping influences about to marry this man, her fiance. And by God's grace... This guy was a responsible guy when it, comes to, when it came to finances and other things. He had no debt other than school debt, and even at that, it wasn't that much. He had a great track record for using a budget and actually sticking to it and being industrious with his hands so he was able to make money. He was faithful at his jobs. He kept to this budget and his jobs really well, and he was in the process of teaching her how to use this budget. It was great, wonderful. And it's interesting that in the course of counseling, it was clear that her fears were not only in the things that she could control, but also in the things that she could not control. That's when you know it's bad. Because your heart so desires security, even in the things that are not in your control. And so you have anxiety about the realm of God. So that's a problem of the heart. When your fears can only be calmed by what can be controlled. That is a heart that struggles to trust God. By God's grace, the time of counseling was a fantastic time. And there were a number of breakthroughs. It was a great time for her to see and confess this idolatry uh, for the very first time. And then just turn from it to trust in God in the midst of fear. And, and you see how these, the, what, the shaping influences of, let's say, seeing her family lose the house... It affected the way that she was going to submit to this man. It affected her trust in his ability to manage the budget, even though he had been so faithfully doing it. Uh, And so she struggled with a great deal of anxiety and worry. But at the end of the day, she was able to trust God and hold it up to him. So as Christians, let us be clear again, we're not against comfort. We're not against security. We just want to pursue the things... That bring ultimate comfort and ultimate security in all these worldly things. And to be off track on those things means that we are struggling with a heart of idolatry. We live by faith and not by sight. And we ultimately entrust ourselves to God and his will. And that's exactly why we read uh, the passage, uh, the scripture reading that we did in Matthew 4. There Satan brings Jesus to all these different places and tempts him with all these delicious possibilities. bread. Power, ruling over kingdoms. Ultimately, Satan there is trying to derail Jesus from accomplishing God's plan for him. He wants him to carve out a little wiggle room so that God's will would be abandoned and Jesus would do what he wants. That he would live by sight and not by faith. That he would trust in his own desires more than the will of God. In the face of temptation, Jesus clings to God's word I mean, mean, Satan parades all of the kingdoms of the world before Jesus and Jesus remains faithful. What does he say in the midst of these temptations? God has said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God has said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and in him only you shall serve. So you see the difference there? Jesus lives for the will of God, though it includes difficulty. The other lives for comfort and security according to their own will. Jesus really is our example as he did not opt for bread in that moment because it was outside of the will of God. Instead, he opted for the cross because it was inside of it. Ignoring God's will, even when it seems most advantageous to you, leaves you at best in lost position, which is Inching towards Sodom. it's fascinating. You hear it in the narrative. I mean, he's looking in the direction of Zohar. And you listen to the narrator's voice. God's voice. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. A very wicked city. We're supposed to be saying, just like Abram as he's entering into Egypt. Oh no, You know, here too we're supposed to say, oh no, Lot's inching towards Sodom. And scripture goes on. He moved his tent as far as Sodom. Another narration. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners of God. So ignoring God's will leaves you in this trajectory. Living by sight leaves you in this trajectory. Living by fear leaves you in this trajectory. It is not good. Lot starts off in the face of Sodom, thirteen twelve, And then he moved his tent as far as Sodom, it says there in thirteen twelve. Soon, Lot will be living in Sodom. And then he ends up sitting in the gateway of Sodom. That's in nineteen one, And the sitting in the gateway language, it typically refers to the fact that Lot had gained some sort of prominent place among the people. He's greatly respected in the city. And then you want to see just how much Lot's plan had worked out. He's so aligned to the Sodomites that, he know, that we know that he pledges his daughters to be married to the people. This is away from the promised land. One compromise, living by sight and not by faith, leaves him facing the direction of Sodom, inching towards it. So for us today, you guys realize that one decision leads to another? One seemingly little decision uh, uh, away from God's will very quickly leads you down the wrong path. One example, I, I see this a lot in uh, relationships, <clears throat> so dating relationships. The question oftentimes is, how far is too far? It's like looking sex in the face and saying, how far is too far? Because I'm going in that direction. It's the wrong questions. How far can I go? When am I actually having sex? It, it, better questions... Or a better method is to look at a holy God and say, I'm following him, and I want to bring her along with me. What does it look like for me to run that direction instead of looking over there and saying, well, how far can I go before I'm actually falling off the cliff? One decision of compromise will quickly lead you down the one road. But if you're always looking at God, believing in his promises and his character, and you're saying, I'm following you then you it's totally different here by the way if you are dating here's a rule of thumb do not do with your girlfriend what a godly married man would not do with another woman if you're dating do not do with your girlfriend what a godly married man generally speaking would not do with a married woman generally speaking physically absolutely at least that's uh Dating advice from Pastor Jeremy. Uh, so for you, are you living by sight and not by faith, inching towards Sodom? You, take, you, you go back to the other, other example about evangelism. You realize that you, by being silent, letting other people shut you up, you know that after you make that compromise, it's all the more easy to make that compromise over and over And over again. I mean, you guys know what this is like. Just look at the patterns in which you sin. Once you make that first compromise, it is easy to compromise again and again and again. The good thing is that it works the same way with following God and living in his spirit. If you have boldness to preach the gospel to your friends and tell them about Jesus or take a stand for holiness or to say, look, girlfriend, I want us to follow after God. What does that look like in our physical relationship It's easier and easier to do it again and again and again. That's living by faith and not by sight, living in the promises of God. You can apply that to any area in which you struggle. Lot should have said, I'm with you, Abram. God has given you the promises and I'm going to follow you. Tell me where I ought to go. Abram and Lot here, they teach us a similar lesson. What does it look like to abandon God's will, which is inherent in our nature as sinners? You know, as God has created us to be in a relationship with him, we sin and we abandon God's will, live for our own glory, and in so doing, we earn ourselves separation from God, treason against God, and ultimately judgment. Lot and Abram teach us the same thing, what it looks like to abandon God's will. But, praise God that each one of us All of our lives and all the situations in which we legitimately run away from God. God uses those opportunities of his Christian people, of his children, to show us his wonderful faithfulness. What did Abram do to deserve the promises? He was a pagan, barren man. But yet God comes to him. What does he do to deserve this, this reiteration of the promise? After he runs away from the promised land, he goes down to live underneath Egypt, only have the pagan man kick him out and say, you're not welcome, you go back. And yet God comes along again and says there in verse 17, look what he does. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house. Nope, sorry, that's the wrong verse there. 14 of chapter 13. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Northward, southward, eastward, westward for all the land that you see i will give to you and to your offspring forever i will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth your offspring also can be counted it's incredible here he then calls him to go walk through the land go and explore it. i'm going to give it all to you here abram invite, uh, god invites abram to feast with his eyes of faith right both men, Abram and Lot. They live by sight and not by faith for a time. But Abraham here, the difference here, even though, even though uh, he is looking as well, just as we know that Lot was too. Lot lifted up his eyes. Here's awesome. God comes along in verse 14 to Abram after Lot's already selected his, his plot of land. God comes along and he says, you lift up your eyes. You see all of this? I'll tell you how you, you and your family are going to inherit that. How survival is going to come? It's going to come because I promised it to you. God here invites Abraham to feast with his eyes of faith because faith is rooted in God and His promises. That's what secures these promises here. That's what's central. God's promise to make a great kingdom out of Abram, to give him land, seed, to make him into a blessing, which is also fulfilled in which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. To give him people, as many as the sand is on the seashore. It can't be counted. God's promise here is at stake. And it hinges on his character. Praise God. Because if we were just like Abram and Lot, which we are, we know that uh, we wouldn't be able to cause God to fulfill it. So there is God doing things that he did at first. Blessing. And there's Abram doing the things that Abram did at first, at least in chapter 12. Calling on the name of the Lord. Verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, basically the heart of uh, heart of Canaan, a little bit south of Jerusalem. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So he's doing the things that he did at first, calling on the name of the Lord in a place where he was at the beginning of chapter 12 in the promised land and had, God had brought him full circle. So let us, as we look at Abram and as we look at Lot, as we see their faith tested and then their faith faltering, let us learn what it means for God himself to be the faithful one. But let us also not not forget that God calls us to be faithful, without doubt. He actually called Abram to live a certain way. Moses goes and calls the people to live a certain way. And in so doing, we honor God because God lays down those means of grace that we are to walk in. And in so doing, he gets the glory as he is faithful. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do confess that oftentimes we live by sight. We live by fear. But Father, we do thank you for the example of Jesus Christ, who, even though he was tempted, he did not sin. And he was faithful to your promises. He wanted to do your will. He hid your word in his heart so that he wouldn't sin against God. Lord, we pray that when we find ourselves in similar situations, wanting to get out from underneath your promises to deliver, maybe adopting our own mentality where we come up with our own schemes and come up with our own plans to deliver ourselves out of the problems that we ourselves get ourselves into, Oh God, we pray that your spirit will be working in such a way where we are quickly rebuked. We pray that by your power of the spirit, it would root our feet in your grace. In such a way where we are able to stand in holiness, in evangelism, in declaring your character, in speaking about the good truths of the gospel where Jesus died on the cross to bear our sin, to bear the wrath that we deserve so that everyone who would turn would be forgiven. Lord Jesus, make us faithful as you are faithful. And may we cling to the gospel in the midst of it. In your name we pray. Amen.